0: Micah, chapter 7, verses 18 to 20. We are closing out our time in this portion of the word today. And we have come to the the sweetest of all the passages in this book. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities foot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Let's pray. My Father in heaven, I realize it is so above and beyond my capacity to do this word justice because it is so beyond me to do your love justice. As it cannot be known in full, so surely, Father, it can't be told in a way that does it justice. But I pray, Father, that nonetheless you would impress upon every heart here the greatness of your love for us in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that every soul here would know upon hearing this word and and then leaving, would know this love personally would know you truly. And every doubt of your love, every fear of judgment, every insecurity, I pray that it would all be driven away by the love of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would give to us your Holy Spirit, that we would rejoice and boast only in your Son, to your honor and glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen i got to tell you that it's, um, it's never easy to preach. Uh, just for the very fact that who am I as a man that I would take into my mouth the very Word of God by which He comes to us. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. God comes to us through His Word. Who am I as a vessel? that i would be used as a channel a conduit for god to come to his people so for that reason itself it's it's never easy to preach it's always a very overwhelming task but there are certain passages passages of scripture that just make the preacher feel this even more so and the love of god is one of those Passages, one of those truths that when you begin to contemplate it, you know that there's, there's no way that you can do the word justice because there's no way that you can do God's love in Christ justice. We know this from Ephesians chapter 3 verse 19. Paul was praying in, in a way we, we think paradoxically, but praying that the saints would know the love of Christ. Know it. Know that love that passes Knowledge. So he prays, of course, and he exhorts us to know that love, truly, which we can never know. Not this side of heaven and not in heaven itself. We will never know it completely. Never know it exhaustively. We'll always be finite. And the love of God in Christ is infinite. And so, in a a sense... It, it troubles me to give you something good that I know would be better if I could speak it better. And there's, there are many others who could speak of the love of God better than I can. And I think uh, in five years, 40-year-old me will speak of the love of God better than the present me. But I am encouraged, and I I can't remember who said this, and I mentioned it in my prayer earlier. I am encouraged by the truth that though many, many people, and of course the angels in glory, could speak of the love of God in Christ better than I can, no one, not here and not above, can speak of a better love, a better Christ, or a better gospel. So... I'm a little bit troubled that I can't speak it better, but I'm very comforted that the truth is he will always be beyond our knowing. I can't speak of all there is, but if I could, he would be far too small, right? Who is a God like our God? That's the question rhetorically that Micah raises in Micah chapter 7, verse 18. I want to, I want you to fix your eyes your attention on it again. That verse he says, "Who is a god like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance." God's love is beyond knowing. We know that because, again, God very plainly tells us so in His Word in Ephesians 3 that the love of God is beyond knowing. We also know that, that this love is beyond knowledge because we have certainly tried to replicate this love. We've tried. We've tried to, in a sense, recreate it. We know that from the fall, of course, we have rejected the worship of the one true God. But that doesn't mean we have stopped worshiping. We have simply tried to create better and more acceptable, more palatable versions of this God. Images. Well, there's there's this thing about the one true God. Jonathan Edwards put it like this hundreds of years ago. He said that in the true God, there are excellencies which are so diverse that they would have seemed to us utterly Incompatible in the same subject, such as we're talking about God's attributes, his perfections, his mercy and his justice. how can this perfect mercy and perfect justice exist in the same being? and so what we've had to do if we were going to in a sense replicate it or try, we've had to make a host of gods, haven't we, with each of those excellencies more domesticated than the original, each God, let's say. One God being really good at one thing and another God being really good at something else. And I'm I'm referring to uh, ancient history now. We'll have one God for helping us to make babies and another God who can grow our crops and another one who can defeat all our enemies and another for safe travel, another for luck to the nth degree. But the gods of this world are mere projections. They are projections either of our fears or our wishes. So when we create these gods in projection of our fears, we end up with gods who are extremely demanding and who are bent on our destruction if we misstep just a little bit. And as we project our wishes, like today, today we live in this world where anything goes, right? And the... The mantra of this world is that we are to tolerate every kind of life. So as we project these wishes onto the gods we want to create, we end up with this great big B benevolence who doesn't have a single judgmental bone in his body. In other words, he has no spine. He's Santa Claus, but he's made of jello. That's what we have done in our projections of our wishes. That's what we have done in... The creation of the false gods. But forget a better version of the one true God. Whenever and wherever and however we have come up with an object of worship, we have never come anywhere close to approaching the God of the Bible. And that's why Micah says, who is a God like you? We have certainly tried to create our share of gods. You know how many gods there are in India, by the way? We've lost count. It's, oh my goodness, I I believe it's in the millions of the gods created. All projections of our fears or our wishes. And we have never come close to replicating the one true God, to approaching Him. Who is a God like Him? Who is a God like you, again, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? What God that we have made forgives those who've wished him dead? What God that we have made forgives our worship of other gods? we know that everything that we have, every good gift is from God. So every everything we have is from Christ and it belongs to Christ. It's from Him and it's for Him. Your time is Christ's. Your passions are Christ's. Your energies, those belong to Jesus. They are from Him and they are for Him. The money that you count your own, it's Christ. It's from him and it's for him. That's Christ's intellect that you have. Ingenuity, energy. All of it belongs to him. What God is there that would forgive us for taking all that rightfully belongs to him that's from him and for him and spending it like a prodigal on other gods? What God I want to say that again, but more concisely. What God would forgive us for taking all that is rightfully His and spending it on other gods? Who is a God like our God? Now, when you consider this in verse 18, you might think, you might realize that we have all of a sudden a problem. We have a problem. I mean, wait a second, this sounds like just nothing but good news. How could we have a problem? But we do have a problem. How can God pass over transgressions? How can He pardon iniquity? And do we really want God to pass over transgressions? Yeah, we want Him to pass over our transgressions, but do we really want Him to pass over other people's transgressions? One of the things that God declares his forgiveness of in this book is false God's worship. He forgives that. But that's not the only sin that he indicts his people for in the book of Micah, is it? Not only the sins that we commit on this vertical scale against God immediately and directly, but God also implicates his people in the offenses of injustice and committing sins against one another. Now, of course, we want God to forgive injustice. But what about the injustice that's done to us? There was horrible, gross injustice committed against the poor of Judah. And all of a sudden, God is saying that he's going to forgive all sin. He's going to pardon all iniquity. If if someone said... That they repented truly of that particular sin? What if that sin had been done against us? Do we want God just to pass it over and to pardon it? If that gross injustice, that oppression had happened to your son or your daughter, would you want God to declare over the offender, I pass over this transgression, I pardon this iniquity? But this is what God declares. We have an issue. We have an issue. Problem. If God simply passes over transgressions, if he pardons injustice, then that raises the possibility that there is injustice in God himself because what judge lets criminals go? What true, pure, incorrupt judge would just pardon offenses. I mean, when, when presidents have done that in the past, you know, when they finish the time of their administration and they begin to pardon certain criminals, we're like, hold up a second. What do you think you're doing? You know, especially if you begin to study those cases and maybe what connection that specific criminal had to that specific administration. We're like, whoa. This is, this is unjust. This is corruption. So we've had, we've had a problem even in our own day about these kinds of things. So we might be able to begin to throw accusations of injustice against God if he simply pardons iniquity and passes over transgression. We say, how can this be? Now, Micah is not saying that God simply passes over transgression because he forgot to pay attention to your particular transgressions. That he was kind of busy doing something on the side and and forgot to look. He got sidetracked. Or maybe he just chooses not to look. This is not to say that he doesn't care about transgressions. The truth is that God's anger corresponds to the offense and I want us to think about the reality and the magnitude of the offenses that we have committed against God. His anger corresponds to the offense. The offense is that we have devalued him. We have devalued the infinitely, the only infinitely valuable being to nothing and have preferred in our fallenness, in our rebellion, anything to this God. That's the magnitude of our offense. And of course, this is beyond. As we, as God in his beauty and glory and value is beyond our understanding, the magnitude of our offenses is truly beyond our understanding. But this offense, let's know it and let's confess it is infinite. Our offenses against God are infinite because He is infinitely valuable. And that's why hell is forever. Because the punishment must fit the crime. So we do have issues. All of a sudden, when God says He pardons iniquity and passes over transgression, we have issues. You see, if God is unjust, He ceases to be God. On the other hand, if God is unforgiving, we cease to be, period. How can it be that God forgives iniquity and passes over transgression? It can be, and it is, because God passed over transgressions to put those on another to put them on another god restrained his wrath and his righteous anger he held it back what was just until one came who could bear the justice and live and it's one whom god himself sent as it micah rejoices in verse at the end of verse 18 he does not retain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. And according to His steadfast love, God in heaven put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation for our sins. That means that He satisfied forever the justice of God. He appeased the righteous wrath and indignation of God by His death upon the cross. And so God can be merciful, pardon iniquity, and pass over transgression because Jesus bore it all in himself upon the tree. He bore the justice and he lived. It says in Romans 3, He shows his righteousness at the present time through Christ so that he might be just. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We've got issues. We've got a problem. It's not just some, you know, abstract philosophical issue. That's not a big deal. That only the academics think about. the The, the great question of all history concerning sinners is how God can be just against the sin and yet save the sinner. But God is just for christ has died and yet he is the justifier at once of the one who has faith in jesus who died for us it says so wonderfully in second corinthians 5 for our sake he made him that as god made him his son to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When you put Micah into gospel perspective, when you hear these words in the light of Jesus Christ, in the light of the New Testament, it should be on the lips of every single Christian who is a God like you. Who is a God like our God? He gave himself to save us from himself. What God does that? There's only one, and he is not of our creation. And I, I before I move on from verse 18, it says he delights in steadfast love. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. You and I do good things all the time Purely out of a sense of duty, don't we? I mean, when you raked the leaves this past fall or maybe just recently, I'm, I would suspect that you didn't do it purely out of a sense of delight. You did it out of a sense of duty. When diapers have to be changed, <laughs> we don't necessarily do it out of a sense of delight. We do it out of a sense of duty. This and that task out of a sense of duty. It says, however, that God delights in steadfast love. He has promised His love to you and He delights in upholding that love. Some of you, as we're many of us are inclined to do, look at our sins apart from the Savior far too much. And you fear God in the unbiblical sense, in the unhealthy and sinful sense, in a way that doesn't take him at his word. But the Bible is telling us here at the end of verse 18, God loves to love you. He loves to love you. And that might sound overly sentimental to some. But I'm not going to back down from it because this is what the word of God declares to us. He loves to love his people. He will again, in verse 19, have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Now, who here does not know that they are guilty before God? We all do, don't we? We all must know that we are inherently guilty before God. And who doesn't fear the righteous indignation and wrath of God? We all should in that that sense of holy trembling before God. And I'll give you an example of that. The Apostle John in Revelation, he was caught up in the Spirit to look upon the glorified Christ and see Him in His majesty. And what was John's response? This man who had walked longer and closer with Jesus Christ than any man, he fell before Him as dead. So it is right to have that holy trembling before the wrath of God. And there is so much in the prophets concerning God's righteous indignation being poured out, and Micah is no exception to it. I want you, in fact, to turn back to chapter 1, because I want you to see this. I want us to take it to heart. The good news of verse 19 needs to be put in the the light, the context of the rest of the book, okay? So turn back to chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. Hear these words that should make every heart quiver. The Lord is coming out of His place and will come down And tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him. And the valleys will split open. Like wax before the fire. Like waters poured down a steep place. Look at chapter 2 verse 10. God says to his people. Who had sinned so pervasively and perversely against him. He says, arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. God comes down, He treads underfoot to nothing, and He casts out. And this is the very thing that we fear and We know that our lives have earned us. He treads underfoot and he casts out. But look at what it says again in verse 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Now, quick question here. Does he tread underfoot in anger and cast out in anger? Or does he tread underfoot in compassion and cast out in compassion? Kind of a trick question. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. But it's not us that he treads underfoot. He will save His people from their sin. Sin is the enemy that would destroy the flock of God's inheritance. God is the conqueror of sin and He treads all of our iniquities underfoot. I want you to hear the word of the Lord. Sin is the Pharaoh in pursuit of us with all of his armies breathing down our necks. And we are helpless Israel, hemmed in at the sea. Wilderness on one side, sea on the other. And then the, the armies of Pharaoh coming on. We are hemmed in on every side, sure of our death. God said to His people, Stand aside and see the salvation of the Lord. He said, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Sin is the Goliath that would conquer us and would enslave us forever. We're helpless Israel on the sidelines, quivering before this giant, sure that we are about to die. But our Lord Jesus Christ is the true and the greater David who steps into the ring and fights on our behalf. And so the Bible declares here in the book of Micah, and it's the testimony of the whole, that your sins don't stand a chance. Jesus conquers. And what should be the response of the people of God? Stand aside, see the salvation of the Lord, and sing. The song of the women of Israel, when they saw the victory that David had achieved on behalf of the nation, said, David has slain his ten thousands. That's the song that we sing to the Lord. Our Lord, Jesus Christ, the true and greater David, has slain his ten thousands on ten thousands. In fact, I'd like you to turn back to Exodus 15, because I really think and most commentators agree that Micah 7 and verse 19 when he speaks of our sins being cast into the depths of the sea is recalling what God did to Pharaoh so long ago. Exodus 15. Hear the song of the delivered people of God. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. I'm in verse 4 now. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. He does not tread upon us not upon his remnant sinners though we are he treads our iniquities underfoot he casts all of our our sins into the depths of the sea stand aside see the salvation of God and sing his praises stand aside stand back from the cross your sin says you should be there the accuser demands that you be there but God is compassionate toward us For the flock of his inheritance, he lays his own life down. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Yes, he is angry. He is angry and he will not relent until all of our sin is destroyed. And he is compassionate. And he will not let up until we are safe with him forever. Finally, we come to verse 20. This promise. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is who our God is. There is no God like our God. He declares again his steadfast love. We've looked at this so much. God declared back to Moses in Exodus 34, verse 6, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Those two sweet perfections paired together, steadfast love and faithfulness. And we see them here again paired. You will show faithfulness To Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. God swore his steadfast love to Abraham. He swore it to him. And then that steadfast love took a particular form. Steadfast love is covenant love, right? It's unbreakable, unwavering, loyal love. That love took a particular covenant form when God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, in you and in your offspring, all the families and nations of the earth will be blessed. That was God's steadfast love sworn in the form of a covenant. More than 2,000 years later, Jesus had come lived in the place of his people, died and paid the debt of those who would believe, rose victoriously from the grave and ascended back to the Father in heaven. And Peter, who had received the Holy Spirit that Jesus had poured out from glory, proclaimed to the people that that promise that had been given to Abraham had now been fulfilled. That promise of blessing for the nations of the earth is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 3 verse 26, Peter said, in fulfillment of that promise, God sent his servant Jesus to bless us by turning every one of us from our wickedness. That's what Micah is promising. That's what God is promising through his prophet. That the steadfast love of God will save us from all of our sins. That God, according to that love and faithfulness, will conquer our sins. Will cast it into the depths of the sea. This promise is fulfilled in Christ. The promise of blessing, first given to Abraham, fulfilled in Christ. In his life, death, burial, and resurrection. This promise has been fulfilled. So he does not turn us away. He turned our wickedness away. He treaded underfoot and He cast it out. He did not turn us away, but turned us away from our sin. Drawing from Acts 26, it says He turned us from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to Himself, that we may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Him. God swore steadfast love to Abraham. He declared that steadfast love to Moses. He promised to show it again in Micah. And he has shown it once and for all through his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing by turning us from our sin to himself. The Father arranged this plan of redemption. The Son accepted our sin as though He were personally guilty for it. And the Father in heaven turned on His Son at the cross that He might forever turn with His Son to us and turn us to Him by the Holy Spirit that He has poured out. Which brings us back to the first question. Who is a God like our God? I was talking with a friend this past week, and we were talking about how necessary it is, crucial for the people of God to meditate on the Word of God. It is not enough for you. It is not enough for the health of your soul. It is not enough for your ongoing worship that I feed you the Word of God on the Lord's Day week by week. You must meditate on the Word of God. You must pour over it. You must dig into it. You must look at all of your sins in the light of the cross of Jesus Christ you must consider over and over again the great undeserved love of the Lord, or your heart will grow dull. You will even hear of it on Sunday, and it will sound kind of strange to you, like it's something that you don't hear very often. People of God, I could not possibly urge you more strongly, meditate, meditate on the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that you gladly stand back and see the salvation of God and sing to Him the praises of which He is worthy. Let's pray. My Father in heaven, you gave us your Son. It it at once shows to us the seriousness of our sin and also a love that is beyond all of our measuring. We can't size it up because it can't be measured. We can't just sum up your love because there is no equal to it. I pray, Father, that even as we can't know this love completely, I pray, Father, that you would make it, that every heart here would know it truly, truly personally to the salvation of their souls and to your glory and honor. I pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.